the only thing that's more important to me than solving climate change is fixing American democracy. That's our special guest today, the Honorable Carlos Corbello, former two-term centrist congressman from Miami. He was pretty much the only Republican House member to publicly address the climate change threatening his C-level district during his four years in office. Because fixing American democracy makes it a whole lot easier to address big issues like climate change, like immigration, like gun safety, like our country's debt. Uh, So that's number one. Fixing Democracy is topic number one on This Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization. I'm Robert Pease. Carlos will also share some great anecdotes and insights from his time in the U.S. House. I'm Jillian Youngblood, Executive Director of Civic Genius, the nonpartisan, nonprofit civic engagement group where, alas, I'm going to need to focus all my energies going forward. Very sorry to say that this is my last bit of Purple co-hosting for the foreseeable future. That's a bummer for us, but Jillian's on to some really important things. We'll learn about those new initiatives at Civic Genius toward the end of our episode. And we'll hope to extract a promise she'll come back to visit. But first, let's get into this great discussion with Carlos Cobello, board member at Unite America, visiting fellow at the University of Chicago, and NBC political analyst. Let's start off with this increasingly unique subject. What's it like to represent one of the very few swing districts on our highly gerrymandered congressional map? I represented uh, the southernmost district in the state of Florida. That's Miami, southwestern Miami's suburbs and the Florida Keys. Uh, It's an extremely diverse district. You have a lot of Cuban-American families in Miami southwestern suburbs. Increasingly, you have a lot of other Latin American immigrants from South America, Central America, uh, even a growing Mexican community, which uh, we really didn't have here for a long time. And it's not just the growth in percentages, but the growing diversity of the Hispanic population, too. That diversity is showing up in places beyond the original hubs of Little Havana and Hialeah. Take West. And then, of course, the Florida Keys, it's certainly the, the uh, you know, the white part of the district. It, it's heavily uh, white, but uh, it is so unique in its needs, whether it's the environment. Uh, there's a naval air station down in Key West. Obviously, a lot of fishing, tourism. So it, it's um, it's really uh, not to uh, diminish any other district in America, but Florida's 26th district is definitely uh, unique and uh, interesting, and uh, uh, there's never a dull moment here. Yeah. So you held some independent and uh, moderate positions that differed from party leadership from time to time on things like climate and immigration, some other issues. Was that difficult at this moment in our politics? It wasn't difficult for me. And and I'll tell people, you know, not that it was easy. And, and I did a lot of work to convince my colleagues at the time. And uh, sometimes I succeeded and, and many other times I failed. But I was never pressured by any Republican leader in the Capitol to stop my pursuits or to vote in any specific way on any legislation. This is the country that has led the entire world through a host of different challenges over the last couple centuries. We can also do it on this climate issue, but I think we can only do it if we do it together. 
Um, so, you know, back in 2015 and 16, very few Republicans would even utter the words climate change in an audible voice. So it was, it was a different time. And yet uh, the leadership was always, I wouldn't say supportive of my efforts, but certainly uh, they um, did nothing to discourage me uh, or to ask me to, to shy away from, from being bold and outspoken on all these issues, whether it was climate, uh, immigration, uh, uh, gun safety. Uh, I ended up supporting uh, universal background checks uh, in my second term. So, um, you know, co Congress uh, on the surface uh, seems like a horrible place, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it, and it is, it is bad. There's a lot wrong with the Congress, but uh, it's, um, you know, it's a lot better uh, than people think. And there's a lot more cooperation and and respect and decency than, than uh, the headlines would have us believe. Yeah, I'm a former staffer and I talk about that all the time. Like, you know, people do have meetings yep. together. It's not, <laughs> not all horrible. Um, so at the same time that you were outspoken about climate change, you also asked to join the um, Democratic-led Hispanic Caucus, and I believe were rejected. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, that was, um, that was a sad experience for me. Uh, in Congress. So the uh, Congressional Hispanic Caucus uh, had always been a bipartisan caucus or a caucus that was open to all Hispanics in Congress, regardless of party. That unofficially, unofficially started changing over time and it became a Democrat-only organization. And I remember at the end of 2016, after I had been reelected and Donald Trump had won the presidential election, I approached uh, Javier Becerra, who was still, uh, Secretary Becerra was still serving in the House. Uh, a, a few weeks after that, he was chosen to become the Attorney General in California, but he was still in the House. And I told him, you know, Javier, we should really come together. The immigration issue is going to be very prominent now under the Trump presidency. And Javier thought it was a great idea. He said, yeah, I'm going uh, I'm gonna to talk. It'd be great to have you in the caucus. Uh, you know, but then Javier left. And uh, you know, I, I asked to join the caucus, and I got the runaround for literally months. And finally, I, I said, look, uh, it's been four or five, six months. I don't remember exactly how long let's get this done. What's the problem? And at that point, things got a little tense and uh, they interviewed me. I went in, actually my wife was in DC at the time and she went into the interview with me with not all of the caucus members, but a good number of them. And uh, she was pretty nervous because she knew this had become a, a public spat. I told them why I wanted to join the caucus. I told them that I didn't really need to join the caucus politically, that no one in my district cared whether I was in the Congressional Hispanic Caucus or not, but that I thought it, it, I could be helpful and that we should have some collaboration. And uh, they voted. I heard it was a close vote, but it was a vote I lost. And, you know, we, <laughs> I said earlier that Congress isn't as bad as it seems, but it's bad enough where being Hispanic is no longer good enough to be in the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. The caucus put out a statement saying that I didn't share their values, which was their justification for rejecting me. That means that they're not interested in, in any kind of thought diversity. 
So I, I thought it was a huge mistake. I don't, um, I don't think they've done anything to change that policy. On the contrary, I think they've actually uh, made it an official policy that they will only take Democrats. And, and uh, that's an example of something that's broken and, uh, and just very sad uh, in Congress today. Yeah. And I think we saw a similar, um, something similar play out later. You were invited and then disinvited by Democrats to a House panel on climate change. And I think what was reported at the time is there was concern that that would help you in your reelection. So does it feel like this was a kind of a trend for you? So, so yeah, this is, uh, you know, bigotry does not only exist on the right side of the political spectrum. This was after I had lost my election. Uh, Richie Neal, who's the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, a, a very decent, good man who is genuinely interested in trying to work with people, even if he disagrees with them. He thought it'd be a good idea to have me at the Ways and Means Committee as a guest of the committee to promote carbon pricing because I, I filed a carbon pricing bill in July of 2018. I filed earlier this year the Market Choice Act. This is a bill that would price carbon, essentially recognize that there's a cost to carbon dioxide emissions, and it would put American consumers in control. It would trust American consumers uh, to make the best choices when it comes to clean energy and energy efficiency. And the person who had defeated me at the time thought that was a horrible idea and was deeply offended by it, went to the leadership to Speaker Pelosi and, uh, and Leader Hoyer and essentially got me disinvited from that committee hearing. And again, that's another because they were worried that maybe I was going to run again and I was going to use that. But, you know, we have an issue like climate change, which Democrats obviously care about. And, you know, here a, a, a recent Republican member of the Ways and Means Committee was going to go to that committee and make the case to Republicans and Democrats that pricing carbon, you know, is a, is a, is a good solution and an efficient solution. And what's more important than that? Well, this person may decide to run again for Congress one day and we can't give him anything that he could use in some way to try to get elected again. I mean, it, it's, it's so small-minded. We're talking with former Congressman Carlos Curbelo, one of the most independent-minded House members during his time representing Florida's southernmost 26th district from 2015 to 2019. And Jillian, Carlos shared some really great stories there of how hyperpartisanship cuts off cross-party discussion. And that discussion is so essential to legislation in the House and the Senate. Yeah. And as a former Capitol Hill staffer, I can attest that much of that is driven by our highly gerrymandered and deeply polarized political primaries, which are just about to start up again this year, where everyone is just preaching to the converted. And the voters of Florida very nearly did something about those polarizing primaries, as in opening them up to independent and unaffiliated voters. They're currently excluded by both parties in Florida. Unfortunately, that 2020 referendum fell just short. 
And, you know, there's a lot of chatter out there right now about rigged elections, but so much of that is misinformation. So we asked Carlos about the challenges of discussing important nonpartisan electoral reforms like open primaries or ranked choice voting during the slow burn of the 2020 election aftermath. That answer is coming right up after we hear his position on that 2020 open primaries initiative that received 57 percent of the vote just shy of the 60% mandate needed for passage in Florida. Yes, I did. I was very supportive of uh, opening up our federal primaries, which is what the amendment would have done. It got 57% of the vote, but in Florida, that's not enough. You need 60%. Uh, and I certainly hope that uh, we'll, try to, to, we'll try to get that done again. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think the, the real reason that campaign was lost is because while those behind the, uh, the petition invested a lot to get it on the ballot, I think they just assumed it would win. And uh, there was not a whole lot invested in, in electioneering and, and campaigning for the initiative. Meanwhile, of course, the, the Republican and Democratic parties of Florida, which never agree on anything, did come together to uh, attack uh, the amendment, and uh, their collaboration made the difference, kept it from getting 60%. And here we are still stuck with these closed primaries that disenfranchise millions of people in our state. We do have primaries coming up. There is a lot of gerrymandering going on. So we're wondering if you feel that's kind of the root cause of polarization in Congress is the primary system. For sure. Look, uh, over the last few years, we've heard this uh, this horrible line promoted by Donald Trump that the system's rigged and that uh, we can't trust our elections. And of course, what he's saying is completely false. And he's uh, just trying to come up with an excuse for why he lost. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. But in a way, it is true that the system is rigged, not because there's massive fraud in our elections, but because if you live in a district where your views have zero chance of ever being represented, then for you, there's not a whole lot of motivation for you to show up. We have too many deep red and deep blue districts where the other party has no chance and where we have primaries where you get 10 candidates and, uh, you know, a candidate that can get 25% of the vote uh, from the most extremist voters in any given area, that's the candidate now who's going to represent that entire district in Congress. And, uh, you know, we've seen that all play out. I mean, there's no question that our country, politically at least, is worse off today than it was uh, a couple decades ago. And uh, there are two principal causes. Number one, we've discussed is, is the structure of the system. But number two is we the people. I mean, at the end of the day, even if uh, there's a district that's you know deep red and another one that's deep blue, people can choose to say, well, even though I'm fairly conservative, you know, I want to elect 
people who are honest, people who, even if they agree with me on all issues, are still willing to listen to other people. Yeah, well, that leads us to an insight from a recent guest here, Thomas Edsall of the New York Times, one of the most research-based columnists. And Carlos, we'd like to play Mr. Edsall's comment for you. Well, you know, I think even though the Republicans are sort of the aggressors in pushing the polarization issues because they work for them, the wedge issues of race, culture, and so forth have generally been ones that Republicans have found profitable on election day. I think the burden is on Democrats. To explain that, I think the Democrats remain a rational party, and the Republican Party has become an irrational party. If you want to preserve democracy, and democracy in a two-party system has very hard time surviving in a polarized context, the burden then falls on the rational party to do something to lessen it. And I think the Democratic Party should take steps to reduce the sense of threat that it poses to many Republicans, to just try to turn the temperature down. Obviously, big generalizations there. But his feeling is it's very difficult to expect the Republican Party at this point to make major changes unless Democrats make some changes too. Well, I absolutely agree with him. And what he is suggesting is what people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and Josh Gottheimer and, and you know, many others in the Congress, well, not many, unfortunately, but a, a good number of others are trying to do, to lower the temperature, to avoid this situation where we uh, get these violent swings in uh, uh, the composition of Congress, right? I mean, who knows what's going to happen next year, but if if we take today's poll numbers as any indicator, Democrats are in trouble and could suffer major losses in Congress next year. Why? Because a lot of Republicans are going to be motivated to turn out. Why? Because they're anxious. They're afraid. They think the Democrats are going to impose a dangerous socialist agenda on the country. And what people like Cinema and Manchin and those who think like them are saying is, no, no, we actually want to work together. We actually built legislation that uh, Mitch McConnell was able to support. That's what we want to do with our power, to bring people together to advance solutions that most of us can celebrate. Well, that's interesting. So you, you alluded to, I, I believe, the infrastructure vote in the Senate. Were you surprised that they were able to get, I believe it was 19 Republicans to sign on to that? No, not at all. Number one, I, I don't know Joe Manchin as well, but Kirsten Cinema was my spinning instructor every Wednesday in the House gym. So I, I know how uh, just bold and um, unrelenting she is, a woman of great perseverance and courage. Uh, so I... I um, you know, I, I was aware of what was going on, and, and I wasn't surprised that they did get so many Republicans. And, and I think that's just an important message for the country. It's important for the American people to see, oh, look, they can do something together. It'll help restore some of the trust and confidence in our system. Sorry, I know this is beside the point, but am I the only one who didn't know that Kirsten Cinema teaches spin classes in the members' gym? Is that a real thing? Well, let's clarify. That's bike spinning, not political spinning. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, cycling. <laughs> and uh, it was a scene every Wednesday morning because uh, Kirsten would come in and play some uh, uh, modern music, you know, hip hop, whatever. And uh, it was the only day that Paul Ryan didn't control the music in the house gym. And of course, Paul is uh, all, you know, Guns N' Roses and Pearl Jam, and he was so annoyed every Wednesday. He'd say, this is not music, it's noise, turn that down. You know, it was, it was uh, every time, never failed. <laughs> That's fantastic. Sorry, Rob, you probably had real questions to keep asking. <laughs> yeah, well, polarization of music, it's a topic we're going to cover soon. So... Last of my questions, uh, we ask everyone on the show to show a bit of purple, which is expressing some respect for members of both parties. Are you still considering yourself a Republican at this time? Yeah, I'm a member of the uh, Republican Party. I uh, I told people that uh, I was not going to let Donald Trump define this party or kick me out of it. My, uh, you know, as long as we have two parties in this country. I firmly believe that they both have to be good, viable options for most Americans. So as long as we only have two, I think we need people in both parties trying to keep them honest, trying to shape them in a way that will help them appeal to the greatest number of people possible. Yeah. So then as a Republican, could you name one or two major Democratic figures, either living or in recent history that you have particular respect for? Well, let's keep things relevant so that, um, you know, more listeners can relate to it. I mean, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, they are holding the line, not, you know, sure on some policies, but it's bigger than that. They are refusing to accept that politics must be a zero-sum game in our country. The only thing we have is a filibuster. And they think if you have a situation we have right now, where you have the executive branch of government and you have Congress, the House and the Senate, they're all the same, and there's no check and balance because basically you just sweep right through and the same thing could happen if Republicans had everything. That to me is a lot more valuable than any specific policy uh, that we get these days because if we continue violating those norms, um, that mutual respect, considering other people, if we continue to violate that, it won't matter what policies we have. Our society will deteriorate to the point where our democracy will no longer be um, a protagonist uh, in the life of the country. That's the Honorable Carlos Cubello, two-term Congress member from 2015 to 19, representing Florida's 26th district, including parts of South Miami and the Keys. And this swing district did in fact swing back to Democrats in 2018, then back again to Republicans in 2020, and will quite possibly be in play again in 2022, which is what we need more of in U.S. politics, competitive districts electing pragmatic legislators in general elections. But let me just say, as someone who is working on civic engagement projects at Civic Genius, if only we had more Carlos Curbelos on both sides of the aisle and in both chambers of Congress. 
Unfortunately, the trend seems headed the other way. A number of more moderate Republican House members have decided not to run again in 2022, including John Katko and Tom Reed, both from upstate New York and both members of the Problem Solvers Caucus. And some of the centrist Democratic House members, like Abigail Spanberger and Alyssa Slotkin, may face tough primary battles from the left after the current round of redistricting. We're going to be hearing more from Carlos Cabello in our upcoming series on the diversity and independence of Hispanic voters, kicking off in a few weeks. So jobs, the economy, and education, you know, if you're not talking about that with Latino voters, you're, you're losing. Uh, and I think Republicans have been smart uh, at trying to meet uh, Hispanics where they're at. Democrats in more recent years have tried to meet Hispanics where they would like them to be. But next up on The Purple Principle, the first episode in our series on polarization at the state level, starting with the great state of Texas, a powerhouse not just politically, but economically and culturally. And musically, not to mention barbecue-wise. The Lone Star State that was once a nation often seems like it might like to be again, but is our country's polarization weakening that Texas identity? In this first Texas episode, we'll ask the hosts of the popular informative podcast Yolitics, Jason Whiteley and Jason Wheeler, whether the Lone Star State might be joining the crowd. Absolutely, no question. I mean, you know what, what strikes me, Robert, is that, you know, politics is this massive team sport, but... The federal offices are the ones that get the most attention. At the end of the day, the state offices, the local offices, the uh, mayor and city council, that's where things really get done, but no attention is given there. And I think uh, to add on to that, that it's almost in the culture right now, it's almost like people are spoiling for an argument. They're spoiling for a fight and politics sort of pervades everything. We hope you'll join us for that episode, which, unfortunately, Jillian will not be here to co-host, as she's turning full attention to Civic Genius. So, Jillian, tell us what's on the agenda there. It's hard to say goodbye, but I am excited to announce that Civic Genius is launching a unique opportunity for people to step up and actually create their own solutions to the key issues facing us today. So we'll be hosting events in communities across the country where you can join us for a day-long nonpartisan deliberation on an issue that's making our politics insane digital disinformation. So you're going to be working in both large and small groups in your community, and you'll have a chance to cut through the partisan clutter and develop a slate of recommendations that you and your new friends from across the political spectrum can go push for together. So check out ourcivicgenius.org to learn more and sign up. That's really fascinating and important stuff. So we'll be checking back periodically with Civic Genius and learning about other civic-minded reform efforts as we visit states throughout the 2022 primary season. Really special thanks to Jillian Youngblood for her contribution these past six months. We've all benefited from her experience, perspective, and positive energy. We've started the audio hunt for a new co-host, but no one knows this show better than listeners. So if someone you know has a strong, independent voice and perspective, plus substantial experience in nonpartisan politics and media, please tell them to get in touch through our website or social media. As always, thanks for listening and sharing the podcast from the whole team, including our composer, Ryan Adair Rooney, a former Texas resident, retuning his dobro for those upcoming Texas episodes. Hope to see you all politically, or is that yolitically speaking, next episode. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.